The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Pod on the Tyne, your go-to Newcastle United podcast from The Athletic. Coming up on this week's show. Depleted mags keep ravenous wolves at bay to remain unbeaten. Sunday at Kingston Park with George, Becky Langley sets out her stall for success with Newcastle's women. And the wisdom of signing Isak. Shearer approves, but do we need more reinforcements after a bruising spell? Yes, hello once again. This is Pod on the Tyne, but neither of us is Taylor Payne, who was fighting the lurgy. Get well soon, Taylor. But we are here nonetheless to bring you the latest on a very exciting few days at Newcastle United. My name is George Culkin. Joining me is Christopher Waffle Waffles, um, who was at Wolverhampton Wanderers on Sunday. Chris, how are you doing? I'm feeling a little uh, bit all over the place, and I don't know if that's because I was in Wolves over the weekend, if because Taylor isn't here and we're having to pretend that we know how to host a podcast. I, d- I just don't know what's going on, really. It's been, a, it's been a very busy few days, but in many ways a very positive few days for Newcastle United. So how, how are you doing anyway, George? Yeah, I'm all right. Yes, I mean, without Taylor, we're, we're sort of left to run amok on this podcast, so uh, please bear with us. And yeah, Wolves, I mean, that was pretty much your... That was that was, that was at the very limits of your acceptable range of travelling for a Newcastle United away match, wasn't it? Well, you see, it was almost beyond the boundaries. You see, I did feel as we were going mm. there, it's beyond Birmingham, you have to go the other side. So when I was going, I was thinking, you know, George should really be doing this, so actually I think I've let you off for the week, so you should be grateful. One little quirky little thing though, you you went down the night before and you actually ended up staying in staying in the team hotel, didn't you? We did, yes, which which uh, we didn't know about until I went down with uh, John Anderson and Matthew Raisbeck from BBC Newcastle, and until we pulled into the to the team car uh, to the car park for the hotel, and there was just two massive team buses. It hadn't dawned on us that it was the the team's hotel. I'm not sure people around the club necessarily realised that. I think they thought mm, they. they Quite often we stay here. They must have realised in advance. We didn't. I would be a far better journalist if I had realised in advance, but I hadn't. So, but yes, yeah, so we that we were in the same hotel as as, as the team and uh, spoke to to a few members of staff in and around, and it was it was good to see them. And obviously, uh, they their preparations must have been decent because they ended up getting a positive point, which we'll go into in a second. So yeah, and so presumably as a as a as a award winning journalist, you got a lot of exclusive stories out of that, which you'd like to share with us now, right, Chris? Uh, yeah, I mean. Where those awards are and when I was awarded them, I would like to right, know first okay. to be qualified. Yeah, um, yeah. fine. They're to be confirmed. Put it that way. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the backdrop to Wolves. It was. I mean, I was at um, I was at Tranmere on the Wednesday, and I I, I loved it. It was um, you know great going. I, I, I sort of love doing those games against lower league teams when there's a win at the end of it, and there was a win at the end of it. But it was a bruising. Um, it was a bruising match as well, and I think Newcastle were feeling the effects of that going into the Wolves game, weren't they? There were, yeah. I mean, obviously, certain players, Jamal Lascelles with his uh, bloody nose, he was was in the squad, but there'd been other players who 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 ended up missing out. I mean, just before we get on those individual players, how was how was your Wednesday in Tranmere, George? I mean, you are in theory our cup correspondent now, anyway. And <laughs> how how was the start of your Cup Odyssey is your terming it. Yeah, well, I wanted to sort of do something a bit different. It's not sort of about putting pressure on the team or the club or anything like that, but it is that feeling of renewal when it comes to cups. Um, you know, we know that under Steve Bruce, the team got to a couple of quarterfinals, but those cup runs sort of ended pretty depressingly, and there was always that sense that eventually Newcastle would hit the ceiling in terms of how far they would progress. You know, I don't think people wanted it to be Brentford, for example, in the in the in the second one. But um, you know, it, it was nice while those runs lasted, but it did feel that the club wasn't geared up to win something to be successful. That is now changing. It's a stated ambition of everyone, including Eddie Howe, who has spoken quite strongly for him, I think, on the importance of comp- competitions. Whether Newcastle are ready now, that's certainly up to debate because 
as we all know, it tends to be the big teams who win the big trophies. But it's just lovely having that sense of a club trying again. And for me, that's why I wanted to, you know, to to sort of term it this Cup Odyssey. That was game one of the Cup Odyssey. Cambridge United last season doesn't count as far as I'm concerned because there was only one priority back then and that was still the still very much the old regime team I would I would put it it was very much an old regime result so yeah I loved it I went there um tough tough opening tough match but great surroundings a great club and then that sort of challenge of being kicked off the park uh, I will also point out that they got mine before you do. I can see that smirk on your face, which obviously our listeners can't. They they tried me a press office, did get my name wrong on my seat. So Culkas, Culkin, Culkin, yeah, the incredible Culkin. Um, but it and you know they tried to kick Newcastle off the park, and um, but they got through it. And I think I think one of the sort of best things for me was although. I saw on Twitter some people being um, sort of upset that players like Bruno came on, and <laughs> perhaps, perhaps rightly, bearing in mind he missed Wolves. But Newcastle brought on 140 million quid's worth of player to win that game, and they did win it. And um, yeah, I'm very pleased with that. Palace next up, looking forward to part two. And you know, there was also a very good, a very good run out fairly at Anderson, who I thought was thought was excellent he was and it's interesting that you mentioned part two is going to be crystal palace because at one stage it looked like part two was going to be the fa cup in january which is quite often the case for newcastle yeah. and this may be this may be like waiting for godo in many ways mightn't it in terms of newcastle's long and long recent i say recent last 60 odd years of, of, of failure to win domestic trophies that they they are a very different club now but previously before Mike Ashley there was the ambition to win things and it just didn't quite happen but yeah I think it's a, it's an interesting thought for a series and it may continue for a long period of time but let's hope that it is hopefully it doesn't let's hope let's hope we can end it quite soon it's going to take me to retirement Chris that's for certain and possibly you as well but um but we'll see but yeah no a bit of fun and a nice way of doing it this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to michelobultra.com courtside to learn more Right, come on, let's get on to let's go on to Wolves. So, yeah, obviously Newcastle were without. I mean, you can argue that they were out with a lot of the spine of the team. So no Bruno, no Wilson, and uh, obviously no Emil Kraft as well. So no Shelby and no Shelby too. So, I mean, overall, you have to be satisfied with a point away from home, don't you? And you have to be satisfied in those in those circumstances. Yeah, I think so. It was a very odd match. Um, for the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I thought Newcastle were pretty good until the final third. Joe Willock should have scored, Mr. Sitter. But apart from that, Newcastle sort of were the better team, but without really making it count. Then Wolves took control for a while, where Newcastle dominated possession, took the lead, and Newcastle, for large parts of second half, sort of flattered to deceive. A lot of good work, but then again, final decision-making wasn't there. And then... Alan Sam Maximan scores a ridiculous goal, which we'll get onto, and Newcastle probably should have won it in the end. So it was it was odd, but if you'd offered a lot of Newcastle fans a draw at Wolves before the game, I think many would have taken it. Um, and the way I sort of termed it in my uh, piece reflecting on the game was that if you put into context where Newcastle were the last time they were Molyneux, obviously you were there that terrible oh, away end, the, yeah, yeah. the final match of, of the Ashley era, but nobody knew it at the time that that was uh, the final act. And everyone felt so despondent that nothing was going to get better, that it was just going to be the same over and over again. Newcastle have come a heck of a long way since then. The, the, the resilience they showed, the quality they showed in many ways, the ability to take the game to Wolves rather than sit off them at 60-odd percent possession at Molyneux. You see where the progress is, but also you also see the direction of travel they're going into, that that it's going to take time for them to get exactly where they want to be. And missing the key players that you mentioned, they don't yet really have the depth to fully compensate for them. I thought the players who came in in different parts did well, but without Wilson leading the line, you lack a real potent goal threat. And Isak, unfortunately, was not available to make his debut despite being there because his work permit was not through in time, so he could not feature Chris Wood just didn't really get any service, only had three touches in the box and didn't impose himself on the game enough. Then he had Sean Longstaff filling in that deep-lying role because there's no Shelby, there's no Bruno Aguimarish because he's because uh, he was injured. Eddie Howe was a bit 
strange in terms of how he spoke about Bruno because he was asked in several different interviews and all he said was a slight knock. He didn't go beyond exactly what that was. And I think the thing interesting about Bruno's injury was it was a very... It was uncovered in a very 2022 sort of way. First of all, fans had deduced that he wasn't in training pictures late in the week. And then he didn't send out his usual pre-match tweet on the morning of the game. And therefore, fans had worked out before it had actually been confirmed that Bruno wasn't going to feature. And I think that Newcastle did lack a little something there. But the fact that they managed to come through without those top players and get a draw was was a very creditable point in the end. And you talk you talk about that resilience. I mean, in the space of a week, Newcastle have gone a goal behind three times, and they've come back to get a positive result. I mean, I think you know three very very different games against Manchester City, Tranmere in the cup, and then at Wolves. But I mean, that resilience is hugely important, important and uh, very creditable to them. Is that? I mean, do we think that sort of mentality is now rubbing off on Alan Saint Maximal? Because it was a wonderful goal, yes, but it comes on top of that performance against Manchester City as well. Is is resilience part of his makeup now, do we think? Just before I get on that, just in terms of to describe the goal, I mean, I'm sure you've all seen it, but it's it goes from the ridiculous to the sublime because Jacob Murphy's down the right wing and turns into a couple of uh, Wolves players on the right-hand edge of the box on the byline. And then Huang, the Wolves player, tries to clear the ball and just lo- ends up launching it massively into the air and it dips on the edge of the D, and Sam Maximan just runs onto it and somehow, despite the ball dropping almost vertically, manages to position his body so that he catches it. It does probably come off his shin. I think it was termed as shinned on match of the day. It's the best shinner I've ever seen if it was, which but it probably did come off the sort of shin to, to then just fly into the bottom right-hand corner of the net. I mean, Josie saw barely even moves because it's there that quickly. It was a absolutely outrageous strike and, and afterwards Eddie Howe said that when it was coming down when the ball was dropping he didn't have a clue what Sam Maximan was going to do he's that unpredictable he says he knows that Alan is capable of so many things but doesn't know what he's going to do in that situation uh, and in terms of in terms of Sam Maximan himself we're starting to hopefully see that we're still at the the, the beginning of that process because he started last season very well he was probably the one player who really actually dragged Newcastle to the point that they had bef- in the in the last vestiges of the of the Steve Bruce era I think he's, he's he's on a higher level now than he was then but he needs to, to to consistently prolong and show this Eddie Howe was very keen after the game to pinpoint Sam Maximan's work rate and the fact that he was the one one of the players who'd who'd run back when Wolves had their second goal disallowed for VAR but correctly by VAR because Fraser had been fouled but Sam Maximan had run the length of the pitch and then was up at the other end of the pitch ready to to score the equaliser and almost score a winner later on as well. So you, we did see a lot more from him, although in the first half he was frustrating. He was back to being the, getting a lot of the ball, hanging on for it for too long, shooting at opposition players. But I think that there has been a bit of a mentality switch, certainly in the recent short term, and it's about making sure that they are they extend that further. That's what Howe and his coaching staff are, are looking to try and do. And I think it was it was imp- I think the fact that he went and embraced Jason Tindall after Dan Byrne had come and basically bear hugged him off the Brave man. That exactly. Brave man. <laughs> I think that that is that showed a lot about about the sort of feeling there is between them all and it rubbing off at the moment. And hopefully we just they keep Alan Saint Maximan in this sort of mood for for longer because he can be devastating. What we've seen in the last two Premier League matches. You mentioned the the Ryan Fraser incident um, that saw. A second goal for Wolves ruled out. There were th- two or three very sort of contentious issues or sort of looked, looked at it at the time. So let's r- rattle through those very quickly. The shirt pull on Sean Longstaff when a penalty wasn't given, that looked like the wrong decision to me. What do you think? I thought it was the wrong decision as well. I mean, I had a debate in the car on the way back with, with John Anderson, the former Newcastle uh, defender, who basically was of the opinion... Took the defender's side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of the, in his day, you know, that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been a foul. He wasn't completely arguing against the whole thing. He was just saying it was a bit soft. And in some ways, it would have been a bit soft. But equally, he, ju- he makes no attempt to get the ball and just drags Sean Longstaff's uh, back by his shirt. And if that had been in the middle of the pitch, that cliche of it would have been a free kick, and it certainly would have been. So... That one, I thought Newcastle were very unfortunate. I think they were a little bit fortunate with Fabian Shares on um, on Pedro Neto. He'd tried to clear the ball and and had just ended up belting it into the back of Joe Willock. And I think he was frustrated for his own failure to clear it. And he sort of rushes in. Neto gets there ahead of him. And he is late. 
his foot does sort of catch the very bottom of almost the shin going at the ankle of Pedro Neto. I think the height of it probably just stopped him from getting upgraded to red. If it had been slightly higher, I think he would have. it would have been a red card, but I think he was a little bit lucky because it was reckless. It looked a bit orange to me, that, that card, I suppose. It'd be one of those ones. And that was described as really, really dangerous uh, by Ruben Neves, but... Ruben Nevers said a few strange things after the match <laughs> yesterday, and um, he talked about Newcastle's style of play, long balls and second balls. They're not a team who wants to have the possession too much. We knew that, and we prepared really well for that. What possession did Newcastle have in, in that game yesterday, Chris? Newcastle had 64% possession in their long ball, second ball style of play, not wanting the ball. So what's he, what's he going on about? I don't really know because actually that was how I thought Wolves played. Wolves were strange and that it was very much... And Neves was, was brilliant. One of the passes Neves played in the first half is one of the best passes I think I've ever seen live. He's almost falling over and he he just pings this pass with his right foot out to out to the right wing to, to set Wolves away. And that was the way that Wolves played. They, they were very deep and then were trying to, to sort of counter-attack in a very much old-style Newcastle sort of way. And in the second half, I thought Wolves ran out of puff almost. They, they they couldn't, defensively, they couldn't get high enough up the pitch because they looked shattered. And it was Newcastle who were taking it to them and looking to, to sort of overload and dominate. So I don't really know where he got that from. I think it was just heightened frustration. Maybe it was just old cliches of what they thought previously when you play against Newcastle. That's what they bring. But that's not the Newcastle United Certainly not of this season. You could argue longer term over Eddie Howe, but certainly not the way they've come back and started this campaign. They've had more possession of the opposition, I think, in three of their four Premier League games. The only one they haven't, I believe, was Manchester City. Um, they are looking to have the ball. They are looking to try and attack at every opportunity. They've got a higher line. Um, that In some ways, you could maybe argue for large spells against Wolves, they probably should have gone longer because Chris Wood, That if you're going to have Chris Wood in the team, that would have suited him more. And actually, I think Chris Wood may have been frustrated once he went off the pitch and sitting looking from the bench because Ryan Fraser comes on and, and at that point, Miguel Almiron whips a ball in from the left with his left foot. Ryan Fraser comes on, puts a few balls across the box like that, targets on the pitch and suddenly whipping Kronos and like that. Chris Wood didn't get across like that when he was on the pitch. And so it was almost backwards the way that Newcastle played in some ways and, and they needed Wood on the pitch for that. And it probably would have suited them more to do what Ruben never said. So I don't really know. I mean, he was he seemed to be very, very animated in that post-match interview and I don't really know where any of his comments, where that came from. It's just bizarre. And Chris, I mean, we've barely mentioned this, but Alexander Isak was, of course, at Molyneux as well, watching his new team, not playing because his work permit didn't come through. But Newcastle have made a huge signing. They've smashed their transfer record. Do you think that'll be useful for him um, to have watched the team first off? And secondly, just talk a bit more generally about what Newcastle have done here and, and the idea with Isak moving forward. I mean, in terms of the game itself, Howe made this point afterwards. He was asked about, about Isak and, and Howe said that he'll have seen the, the pace and frenetic nature of the Premier League because certainly in the second half, the game was just so end-to-end. It was so open and it probably isn't like much he's experienced in in the Spanish League over the last few years. And, and that basically, he almost challenged Isak as well. He said he's going to bring his heck of a lot, but also he needs to realise he needs to put in these physical levels and match the physical output that we've shown in these matches as for the deal itself it's a it's a massive it's a massive deal and I mean I've written about it on The Athletic there are quite a few pieces that you can read about uh, Isak there Alan Shearer has done a bit looking through this sort of style of play and his goals uh, I've done a piece with Mark Carey looking at the sort of player he is and then also a piece looking at how the deal really came about and the way the deal did come about was between basically our last podcast and this podcast, Newcastle completely changed tack and what they were trying to do in an attacking sense. Isak was the top target all summer in many ways. He was the top, the, the unanimous decision across the the transfer committee as to the striker that they would ideally have liked. But as recently as July, uh, senior sources were saying when we we're out in Austria that he was just too expensive. Newcastle had sort of gone with it and proposed, hadn't made an official bid, but sort of proposed that maybe they could be going up willing to go up to something like 50 million and Sociedad has sort of said he's not for sale we're not going to do that you have to meet his release clause which is about 76 million pounds and Newcastle weren't prepared to do that they were in discussions to sign Jao Pedro from Watford over the course of of the weekend of the Man City game they made a final proposal of about 20 million plus 5 million 
uh, in, in add-ons. Uh, sorry, 25 million plus 5 million add-ons. And basically, it was almost like a, that's our final offer. What for do you take it or leave it sort of thing? And they just sort of left it. At the same time, they then, after Callum Wilson's injury against Manchester City, forced a bit of a rethink, as Eddie Howe admitted on Fridays, to the sort of striker they were looking for. And they realised they needed probably someone who could play through the middle as well as out wide. And also... Yasser El Romain was there, so a wonderful game. And at least some people suggest that maybe that had an impact as it did in January whenever the chairman was there. It seemed to be greater funds were released. Certainly, Newcastle went back to, to Sociedad and over the course of a few days, Ashworth flew out. And to cut a long story short, Newcastle eventually went and made a, a club record offer and brought Isak to the to Tyneside. So basically, the deal was done in the space of three or four days, a club record deal, which I managed to conclude in the space of between two Premier League matches. And it does feel huge because Newcastle have needed defensive reinforcements. It's been the priority all summer, and yet they hadn't signed anyone. The only striker that signed post-takeover was Chris Wood up to this point. So this feels like a massive deal for Newcastle United. We've talked a lot about the sort of evolution of uh, Newcastle, whether it's off the pitch or, or on it. But, you know, we've looked at the team, how it's been strengthened in a way that keeps the ethos of the, uh, you know, the team that was there before intact and the, how that's very important. But if you take a step back now and you look at the spine of the team, theoretically, you've got Botman at centre-half, you've got Bruno in midfield, you've got Isak playing in a forward position. Suddenly, that starts to look like a very different Newcastle, doesn't it? And, you know, very exciting. They're, they're not there yet, clearly, in terms of personnel, in terms of squad quality. But that starts to look like a very exciting and different Newcastle, doesn't it? It does. And the three players you mentioned also sort of symbolised the model of the player that Newcastle are looking for and have been looking for, which is to sign players who they think can become among the very best in Europe, but who aren't quite there yet. They are signing potential to a certain extent, but they don't want to pay the high wages and inflated fees yet for players who are already at that level. They want to sign them before they're there even if it is for quite a lot of money because they think they'll develop into better players. There is, it, 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 it's, it's interesting because there's an irony that the, 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 the Mike Ashley model to an extent mirrored this, but Newcastle are going for a higher quality of player now and also they have a club geared to actually help those players reach their potential and to make sure that they grow with the club. It isn't to come to Newcastle necessarily to go elsewhere. The hope is that, that this is going to be the spine of the team in theory for years to come or they can they can replenish it with other players and build it. And so I do think you are starting to really see, as you say, that spine of the team looks different. And I'm fascinated to see how, how Isak fits in, because Howe's said that he sees him and Wilson playing together, as well as Isak being able to play through the middle instead of him. He played a lot of, basically all of his football last year for Sociedad was through the middle, but previously has played out on the right or left. And a front three of Alan St. Maximan, Alexander Isak and Callum Wilson, I think is really quite exciting, actually. All right, it is time for a quick break, but we do need to tell you about this offer for podcast listeners. You can subscribe to The Athletic at a special price of just £1 a month for the first six months. To claim that offer, go to theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod and get access to all our great writing as well as ad-free versions of The Athletic's podcasts. That's theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod. Please sign up now. Come on, you Maggies. Mark Chapman and we finally reached the closing week of the summer transfer window. Premier League clubs have spent more than their German, Italian, Spanish and French counterparts combined and they are not done yet. Don't miss any of the twists and turns with myself, David Ornstein, Adam Crafton and many more on the Athletic Football Podcast this week as we take you inside the deals that really matter. We're free to listen wherever you get your podcasts and we're ad-free on the Athletic app. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Right, and let's move on to George's Alternative Sunday because while I was uh, actually going to an away game for once and not sending George, he was he was very kind of you, Chris. Very kind of you. You're welcome. He remained uh, in the northeast and he was at, at Kingston Park and adding detail really to a story which broke last week, which we've trailed for quite a while and has been in the pipeline basically since the takeover, and that is that the women's team have now been officially brought into the club structure previously for the last few years they've been run through the club's foundation but Amanda Staveley one of her big big goals since coming into the club was to make the women's team be competitive to professionalize them and to move them up into uh, the the upper echelons of the women's game really and Becky Langley the manager uh, has been has become full-time now she previously wasn't and George you spoke to to her last week uh, for an interview before going this match, didn't you? Yes, I did, and I wanted to do some of that for the podcast. I'm also going to write write that interview, so by the time the pod's out, that should be up. And I just wanted to, yeah, I wanted to kind of get a feel for what's happening with the women's team, try and uh, get across all those different changes. But I also wanted to go to to the match too and see, you know, get get a feeling for that too. But anyway, yes, I I did speak to Becky Langley at St James's last week, and I. First of all, I asked her to explain the exact nature of the changes that are taking place at the club. Yeah, we're absolutely delighted that Newcastle United Women has moved kind of from being looked after by Newcastle United Foundation and we've moved into the real main body of the club. Amanda Staveley's support and the board's support with regards to us moving to be part of that Newcastle family has been really, really important. And it means that myself, I can go full-time as the first full-time women's manager and it means that the players are going to be much more supported on and off the pitch. So yeah, we're absolutely delighted with that. And it just makes us feel more a part of the family and more a part of the furniture at Newcastle United. I mean, symbolically, it feels very, very important. Is that how it, is that how it feels to you too? Yeah, I feel like I've made history already in terms of going full time. And it just gives more credibility to women's football and that, you know, the club are taking this really seriously. Well, We'll have targets to meet and our aim will be to win promotion to Tier 3 as it was last season. But having that powerful support behind us will make us, you know, a force to be reckoned with. And I know you were you were part of the foundation from 2017, I think it yeah. was beforehand. But does it feel, I mean, in terms of that symbolism, mm-hmm. actually being owned by the club and being part of the club, that that's an important statement moving forward, isn't it? And and without, you know, wishing to sort of delve into the past too much... Was there a feeling that you were a bit of an afterthought before? Um, I think, you know, we've always been proud when the girls pull on the black and white shirt or when we're, you know, preparing and getting ready and pulling on the Newcastle United tracksuit. It's always been something which we've really been proud of and we don't want to devalue the support we've had previously because a lot of people worked extremely hard behind the scenes with limited resources to get us to where we are now. But yeah, there's a definite, much more professional feel about it. There's more emotional support there's more care about women's football and I think there's just more respect with regards to equality for women the main aim for us has always been equal access we understand that women's football doesn't offer the same product as men's football currently but that equal access you know as the first focus over kind of anything like equal pay is just really important to us and obviously huge congratulations you mentioned your your uh, uh, your promotion if that's the right word how will your life change because of that? I mean, in terms of your day-to-day life? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is just being able to focus my full attention on Newcastle United women, as many coaches in the past have already done. You know, having to balance a full-time job as well as coaching the women's team is, you know, was very challenging. I was full-time working at Northumbria University, running their women's football programme. So having to balance all of that stuff, I mean, there was moments last season where me and the students at Northumbria, some of which are players at Newcastle, travelled all the way down to the University of Bath for a fixture on a Saturday and then travelled eight hours back and had Leeds United away on the Sunday. So <laughs> as you can imagine, challenges like that weekend were, were very tough and that probably shows to everybody you know, how challenging last season was and how well we did to even finish second with 
the amount of things we had to balance, but we just want to go that one step next season and that time and resource will really allow me to focus my attention on the team. And with great responsibility, I'm going to, I'm going to reverse that statement, with great yeah. responsibility comes pressure, I should imagine. I yeah. mean, it's fantastic that there's mm. been the support for the women's team, but... You're under pressure, aren't you, right from the start? I mean, it's a nice pressure, surely, but it's yeah, I think, um, big ambitions. It is, and I think a lot of people have asked me that question with regards to pressure, and I think, well, me for definite, i put so much pressure on myself over the last couple of seasons to succeed anyway, so no one will put more pressure on me than me. Um, however, I think, almost flip it the other way around, I think there's pressure on us to perform, but... I would feel very under pressure if I was playing against us because we'll be a really powerful force in our league this season. You've made lots of signings, haven't you, this summer? Can you talk us a little bit about that? Yeah, we have. We've, um, we've recruited some young players who are in the England under-18 setup, which is brilliant. They're obviously at the young stage of development, but they're obviously brilliant technical players who've got an exciting future here. We've also recruited some experienced players in our kind of Tier 3 and Tier 2 to play at Newcastle. I think Ellie Dobson obviously made her mark on Sunday with, with two goals coming off the bench and impacting the team. And we've recruited a couple of players from Durham University who are scholars there. So they've got that excellent education behind them, but also they've got a full-time football model which allows them to, you know, really perform at Newcastle as well. And does it I mean, does this feel like a transformative era for women's football? I mean, you saw what happens in the summer. I mean, amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. absolutely sort of amazing scenes. I'm someone who grew up as an England fan, watched England all my life, yeah. and finally I've seen an England team, you know, win something. I mean, does it does it feel like a special period for the women's game? Definitely. I mean, as a fan, as we all were watching those England Lionesses play, the atmosphere was absolutely electric. I went to the game at Old Trafford and the one at Bramall Lane, and the atmosphere was absolutely outstanding. And one thing that stood out to me when I was walking into Old Trafford, the fan base outside was was amazing and I turned to a friend and I was like I can't believe the excitement around women's football and kind of she said to me yeah but that was what it was like at your game but obviously I didn't feel like I wasn't a fan outside so yeah it's um it's very emotional feel about it and you could see that from the passion the Lionesses showed at that full-time whistle when they win the Euros but because the likes of myself and others and you know trailblazers who've paved the way for women's football they've had to do the the hard work when they were you know, the full-time employees just giving up their Sunday, their weekend to play women's football and train after a long 12-hour shift. I think one thing that is worth mentioning with regards to that, though, is that's not the reality anymore for women's Super League players. But for a lot of championship clubs yeah. and a lot of clubs in Tier 3, 4 and below, the reality is that we had a player, for example, who works full-time in the police and comes and plays for our women's team part-time. So... The reality is still that there's a lot of work still to be done. Yeah. Um, but the way it's going and how positive Newcastle United Football Club have been to support our women's team with context, we are in Tier 4. But, you know, they're willing to do anything to get the club to the success that we want. And I know from your Twitter and everything that Dan Ashworth's already been to see training. Have you had a chat with him yet? Because obviously the women's team kind of falls under his remit now as well, which is really encouraging. It's not yeah. just the men's team, it's it's the whole club. Yeah, I've met a few times with Dan, had a couple of meetings with him um, and he's, you know, really ambitious for our women's team as well. And it was great that he popped down to, to see the players at a training session as well. So the players have met him as well. But yeah, he's um, really passionate about helping the women's team get to where we want to be as well. And... Another part of the announcement was that games will be two more two games played at St James's this season, and Kingston Park will be there kind of quite regularly. I think. Yeah. How much of a difference does that does that make? Yeah, it's a huge boost. I think having that home crowd advantage is definitely a massive boost. But it's more than just winning the football games. It's about inspiring the whole of the northeast and beyond to come and support women's football. And a lot of teams in the women's Super League are only averaging probably two thousand, three thousand fans a game to show we could get. 24,000 nearly in tier four I think shows that there is interest there and that people do want to come and watch women's football but we've obviously got to do our role and make sure that the product is exciting and entertaining and people want to come and watch it and then just you know for for people who maybe didn't come to see that game last season what can they expect what can people expect coming to see Newcastle United I think they can expect a hard-working group they're a young group so they've got tons of energy we play very energetically and we want to attack as quickly as possible without giving too much away but um yeah we're a team that you know we, we fight hard for clean sheets and we're going to make sure that we're defensively really hard to break down 
our clean sheet record last season. Um, we had nine clean sheets in the league and we were looking to, as a target, to hit 12 this season. So, yeah, we're going to be a hard team to play against. So great to hear from from Becky Langley there. And obviously this this game was at Kingston Park. Newcastle women's played there in January as well for an epic cup tie before that first appearance at St. James's Park in May with the, the huge crowd. What was the atmosphere like for this game, George? What was the sort of attendance? Because the, the problem they had, unfortunately for them, was that the Newcastle's men's game was moved for TV at exactly the same time. But it was still a pretty good crowd, wasn't it, for, for fans who turned up? Yeah, there was more than 1500 people there as you say playing at the same time as the men's team isn't isn't ideal and you know Becky was certainly sort of sad about that. I think they've you know both their games so far they've been playing on the same day so um but they won 2-0 they beat Stockport County um and it's two games in two two victories which is really impressive. Becky wasn't happy with the way the team played in the first half which was sort of quite interesting because I thought they played very well apart from the final ball, perhaps, or the last decision. Um, certainly, you know, certainly their their play wasn't reflected in the scoreline. But a really good goal from Lauren Robson, and then a second from Georgia Gibson. And yeah, it was it was just a lovely. It was a kind of really nice atmosphere. It was great to see them playing f- firstly in that stadium. You know, a big proper stadium, and um, very family orientated atmosphere. Cheap to get in. Lots of families. Lots of kids there. Lots of black and white. And very encouraging to see the the women get that level of support. You know, it's a it's a time of huge change. I mean, it's you know for Becky to be made full time. That's a that's obviously a big thing. But the the ambition there is is that Newcastle will be competing in the Champions League by twenty twenty seven. So same as with the men's team, it's a very very ferocious level of ambition there. And the first thing they've got to do is get out of the fourth is get to get out of the fourth tier and get promoted. So it's a it's a very good start so far. There is definitely a buzz around the women's team and I would recommend to all our listeners if they have a if they have a weekend off and the women are playing at home to go and see them because it was a it was a great atmosphere and they played really good attacking football I thought. And obviously they've made a few signings this this summer as well, haven't they? They've really strengthened that that team. Yeah, they've made some signings over the summer. It's a young team. They're looking to kind of get forward as much as possible. And yeah, I mean that investment is a is a is a real thing. I mean I sort of asked Becky, you know, sort of logistically how things have changed since coming under the club's um, umbrella. And it will, you know, it means that they'll get support, much more support from the from the club to to remind people they were they were part of the foundation before but you know it means they can draw upon the club's resources she's already spoken to Dan Ashworth Dan Ashworth's coming to watch them train um and you know it's simple things like having more physio access but it's also logistics she was saying even even last season they had trouble sometimes organizing uh training getting places to train that's all taken care of and moving forward eventually they'll be part of the new training ground training at the same place as Newcastle's men's team and the academy and absolutely the way it should be it's about that sort of equality of opportunity um encouraging women and girls to play and providing them with the support to do it but you know i i asked i asked becky about sort of being under pressure and i like the way that she turned it around and talked about you know she thinks that it's going to be the opposition team that's under pressure because Newcastle are going to be good and you know that's a nice attitude to have um yeah I really enjoyed it certainly won't be the last game I'll go and see go and see that and uh yeah very very exciting times Okay, Chris. So I'm going to do this joke in honour of Taylor, who is absent this week, but just to show that he's he's never forgotten. He's always he's always part of our thoughts. So Jurgen Klopp was asked if he could remember how many Liverpool scored against Bournemouth, and his answer was nine. So we'll never know, will we, Chris? Oh God. We'll never know. Oh, oh. It, it it does it does feel like the spirit of Taylor has risen from his sickbed and just implanted itself onto you there. It really does. 
they're they're pretty good though, aren't they, Liverpool? I mean, they've they they certainly had a bit of a slow start this season, but that was a pretty decent response to it, wasn't it, Chris? It was, and the frightening thing was it could and probably should have been more. I mean, Salah could have had a hat trick and didn't score. Salah, that's almost what was more staggering than the nine nil result is that the the Salah did not score any of those nine goals. Um, it's. It is. It is frightening. It's not. It's not the ideal sort of preparation go, going there that they suddenly have managed to get out of the system. But in some ways, you think, well, at least they at least they've gone and thrashed someone else, and hopefully, hopefully that's them now. Sort of, they don't need. They don't feel that same quite quite the same frustration in some ways. I suppose the concern for Newcastle is physically how much they've put in the last few matches. Eddie Howe spoke about that after the Wolves game. He said the players are giving everything. They've exerted themselves and and that has physically affected them in terms of the players who who have been unavailable. Kieran Trippier even looked like he, he pulled up possibly with a little bit of a hamstring injury at, at, at uh, Wolves. Howe said after the game he didn't know about that and so obviously Wolves, uh, obviously Trippier was able to continue. But if you don't have Bruno Gimresh, who Howe said won't be there, on Wednesday, Callum Wilson isn't going to be available. Still no John Joe Shelby, obviously that's a good few months from now. There were other niggles throughout the match. Isak hopefully will be available. They're hoping that the the work permit will come through in time. How speculated that maybe because it was a bank holiday, that was part of the reason why it hadn't come through previously, but that's one of the effects of that you've got from Brexit. And post-Brexit, this is one of the issues that Newcastle and other Premier League clubs have is that to, to sign players from Europe quickly it can take a little bit longer now to get them the sort of work permit sorted but Isak hopefully will give them a bit more of a boost is he likely to start at Anfield I think that that's probably asking a little bit too much it would be very un-Eddie Howe like for him to throw a new signing in particularly in an away game even though they are a bit short up front I do think it'll be slightly different amalgamating Isak into the team to how he did with with Bruno and in theory what they were going to do with Botman before injuries took hold because I think that it's an attack with it being an attacking position it's slightly different to what is required in midfield and in defence in the Premier League and so I think that Isak because he's going to bring that extra dimension will come into the team a little bit quicker but hopefully uh, he gets a bit of an introduction off the bench on Wednesday and Newcastle are still in the match by then because the, the physically that's where I'm a little bit worried just what they've done over the course of the last 10 days we know what they're capable of if they are physically ready but if they're a little bit drained then Liverpool could well take hold particularly at Anfield when Newcastle's record is appalling it is our intention Chris to record a second pod this week I think to to reflect on the closure of the transfer window to see how Newcastle have done we will talk a little bit about more about Isak then um, hopefully after seeing him play and score a hat-trick at Anfield. Um, but there is that sense, isn't it? I mean, I know I talked about them scoring nine goals and, and things, but it's a, it's a fixture to be anticipated now, surely. I mean, yes, I would be happier if Newcastle's main players were fit and firing, but at the same time, we don't go anywhere now, do we? Having that sense of fear that we would have done 12 months ago a little bit more, it's, it's an opportunity to be relished. And even if Newcastle don't win or don't get a positive result it's not something to be scared of anymore is it no i don't, I don't think it is i, I just I, th- I think that unfor- it's unfortunate where the liverpool game is going to fit into the calendar because of the, the previous games they've had but equally how does not go into any match thinking that Newcastle are not going to at least try and impose themselves to a degree on the game. That doesn't mean Newcastle are going to dominate the ball in Anfield because they almost certainly won't. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have 20-odd chances as they did at Wolves. But what they will do is try and maximise the opportunities they do have. They will commit bodies forward. They will have. They will probably press high, I would imagine, as well at certain opportunities and try and impose themselves onto Liverpool. And that is a diff- that's a different shift in mentality from from the previous Newcastle United that we knew. Again, it's about what I said, reflect on the Wolves game. Newcastle have come a heck of a long way and they still have a way to go, but they are in that process and we know the process is continuing and they're going to keep improving. And it's just fascinating to see how they actually do at Anfield, given all the caveats which I mentioned previously. And a couple of weeks ago, when you were off, I wrote a piece basically trying to sort of explain where the club stood in the transfer window. At that point... Um, spoke to someone at the, at, the, at the top of the club. They were talking about making, hopefully making two permanent signings. We have got a couple of days left until the window closes. Do you think that's still a realistic possibility? I mean, you know, we do know that the City game changed things in terms of Wilson, in terms of money being free, freed up. Where do you think things stand? Is it the loan market now? 
any up-to-date information? I think it probably is likely to be the loan market, although Eddie Howe was pushing for more. He was interested on Friday that he was he was very clear. He kept on being asked in his pre-match press conference about uh, further transfers. I asked him specifically about a midfielder, and he was ver- he was very clear that he was saying, I would like ideally further transfers, but it's not just my decision. I have to wait and see what the club have financially. They've gone above and beyond what he previously expected to manage to get Isak in. As I said earlier, they thought he wasn't uh, achievable for, for the right price that they could afford early in the window. He has arrived. But really, the the priority now is is midfield. Ideally, I think Howe would like another wide forward as well, someone who's versatile and can play across the front line. But midfield, the lack of depth that they have now with Shelby still being out injured and with obviously Bruno Gimraes, his his injury has sort of highlighted that because you may look at it and think, well, Newcastle have got five midfielders, but how plays with three? So if you play with three midfielders and suddenly suddenly you've got you've got an injury, then you only have one who can come on. And in the world of of sort of five substitutions, they have Elliot Anderson who came on and did very well, and actually I think he's probably pushing towards a starting place. He did he did that well when he came on again and haven't haven't performed well at Tranmere, but they just want a bit more deep lying creativity there. Someone who maybe releases Bruno to go back to being in that number eight role. They've looked at a few different players, Edson Alvarez and Ajax they like, but I don't think they're going to be able to afford him permanently this window, so I don't see that one necessarily happening. Conor Gallagher, a different player they see as a sort of number eight, as someone they have registered interest in. At Chelsea, David Ornstein, our colleague, has reported that, that on Monday morning that neither Gallagher nor Christian Pulisic, the winger who Newcastle uh, have also registered interest in, looks likely to leave at this stage unless Ch- Chelsea are given um, a, a, an offer they simply can't refuse. And as I'm saying, if, if it's going to be loans, then perhaps that isn't going to, neither of those two are necessarily going to be attainable. But Newcastle are actively looking. They are looking for uh, a midfielder primarily, but also I, I'd say that I'd expect them to, to try and push for at least one more. Whether they can get two is... Uh, at this stage looking a little bit unlikely but I do think they will try and get one at least probably on loan and Newcastle do still need to do outgoing business as well the squad's too big we know that um, the kind of the biggest name to be linked away at the moment is Martin Dubravka who's not been involved in the last couple of games they had to do something with their keepers didn't didn't they Chris but it's that you know there has to be there has to be more movement elsewhere too that does, and interestingly, Emil Kraft's injury, which is very unfortunate, and I, and I and I'm very, we all wish him a very speedy recovery. An ACL injury, so he's going to be out for certainly the first half of the season. Could be the majority of the campaign. That may mean that he is left out of the Premier League squad. In fact, I think it probably will, which lessens one position they need to move on. But they still have too many senior players, and Martin Dubravka. Uh, Manchester United do want them they seem to be preferring a loan with an option Newcastle would like a permanent or a loan with an obligation uh, I think Howe is a little bit frustrated by by the whole situation he, he keeps saying it's not my decision and he keeps saying I, I would prefer not to leave and uh, not to lose any players which seems a little bit unrealistic given that he has four senior keepers and has too many players so he really does need to move one of them on but I think he would prefer if it wasn't Dubravka really given the experience that he has so Dubravka may go and then one or two others uh, from the first team group may depart as well. Matt Ritchie has been coming on in recent games, but I suppose he's someone who's up there. Federico Fernandez has been linked with Stoke. And then I still expect Matty Longstaff will probably go out on loan because he isn't going to feature for the first team group. Yeah, very interesting. And as we're recording, it looks like Crystal Palace have made a £27 million bid for, for Gallagher. So whether that shakes things up there, we will have to wait and see. He did very well there on loan, of course. So uh, we'll have to see how things change there. And just to repeat, our plan is to bring you a little short podcast on Friday once all the business is done, hopefully with Taylor uh, back in the presenting seat because he's a lot better at it than you or I, Chris. No offence to either. Well, a bit of offence. Yeah, I mean, you could probably tell his jokes better than you did as well. His terrible jokes. Yeah, they yeah are. that's fine. But the other thing, the other thing, just as we wrap up, this is quite an interesting quirk. Newcastle have played in four different kits in their last four matches. Is this what they're going to do this season? Is it just going to be a new kit every single match? Is there a fifth kit? Do they have a kit with Jimmy Nail's face on it? That's what I want to know, because certainly I'd buy that one. Oh, it'd be a great competition. This one to design the kit for the next game. Oh, that's what they should do. Yeah. Bring it in, bring it in. But, I mean, Jimmy Jimmy Nail's face would be quite... That would be quite intimidating for the opposition. I think. Imagine Joe Linton running around with a massive picture of Jimmy, Jimmy Linton. <laughs> 
God, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? That's, a, that's quite a good idea. I've come, Castore, if you're listening, I want 10% of that. Um, and certainly look forward to receiving my shirt in about four years' time when you finally uh, can be bothered to uh, dispatch it. Yeah, I mean, the kit, the kits... So there were the bizarre one at Brighton, which was the sort of one-off training kit, which I still thought was laughable how you can have three kits and yet they still manage to class, clash with... Uh, Brighton's kit, so that that was puzzling in in its own accord. Then they obviously played at home against Man City, wore black and white, wore the dark blue and orange shorts on Wednesday at Tranmere, which, which I like. Which you like? I, I think that the shorts don't quite match the shirt. I think they look like two different kits, but that's just me personally. But the kit, I don't really. I mean, I don't. I did not like the kit on on Sunday. I I know that this rails some people uh but i don't make i don't make any apologies for it. i just don't like it i i just don't think it looks like a newcastle united kit now that sounds bizarre because no way kit really should look like a newcastle united kit in many ways but it just uh, it just i just didn't i don't like it i don't even think it's a particularly nice kit of its own accord anyway um and so yeah that was a little bit to see it for the first time was a, it did it did sort of leave a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth i have to be honest I'm not a big fan, but I am a Newcastle fan, so I think you know. I think we're entitled to give give our opinions, and we know from people speaking to people at the club that it was it was a Castore oriented uh, oriented decision that they thought it was the right thing, a good thing to do potentially to 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 use Saudi Saudi colours, and it was then signed off by the club. So that is a you know that was a deliberate um, deliberate policy. And you know, I want I want Newcastle United to represent Newcastle. I don't want them to represent anywhere else. So yeah, not uh, not a fan of it either. But anyway, yeah, we'll have to see if they wear something else at uh, at Anfield. Yes, and obviously I will be at Anfield to cover that match for the Athletic. And in the meantime. Just to remind you once again about our subscription offer. You can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 per month for the first six months and get to get access to all our great writing as well as ad-free versions of The Athletic's podcasts at theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod. All right. Well, it's time to time to call it a day. So, Chris, you're off for your second away match in the space of a few days. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm quite surprised as well um, that you're deigning to do that. But it's funny, yeah. The... Well, you're, you're just being very lazy, aren't you? Sort yeah, you're happy to do the glamour ones, aren't you? The glamour ones, yeah. yeah. The glamour of Wolverhampton. Yeah, that was that mm, was okay. Whatever. Right. Well, hopefully, um, hopefully Taylor will be back later on this week. But um, fingers crossed for another positive result, and we will see you. All things being equal, later on this week. Cheers for listening. Toodaloo. You mentioned the uh, the Ryan Fraser. <clears throat> Do that again. You mentioned that Ryan Fraser incident where he was pulled back by no. What possession did Newcastle have in in that game yesterday, Chris? Uh, they had two seconds. Let's check this. Sorry. I think it's sixty-two. Uh, Sixty something. They, Newcastle had sixty-four percent possession. And the wisdom of signing Isak. Shearer approves, but do we need more in volume? Two really good goals um, in the end. Damn it. Just to remind you once again about our subscription offer, you can subscribe to The Athletic. Uh, what is the actual offer? Mm. Well, that was just awful, wasn't it? Thank you very much for listening, and yeah, keep uh, keep your e. Oh, okay. What did, what did I say there? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what you'd said. I don't know. You sort of just—it's not easy, this, is it? Get well soon, Taylor. The Athletic.